Hello and welcome to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and this is the show that questions what we're told to accept as truth. Today I'm meeting Bonnie Wright. The best thing is to really ask questions of a brand. You know, if they're saying, you know, sustainable T-shirt, sustainable, like what's sustainable about it? Is it the way that cotton was grown, how it was harvested? What are you doing about the soil? Like how much water do you use to make that T-shirt? Like what am I going to do with the T-shirt afterwards? What was the living wage that you gave to the people working for this T-shirt? I think it's just all about seeking more transparency, I think, behind the statements. Now, unless you've been living quite a sheltered life for most of the 21st century, you'll probably recognise Bonnie as Ginny Weasley from the Harry Potter film franchise. But for her, those years of acting served as a brilliant foundation that would nudge her into the work she's now really passionate about doing. She founded her own production company and is now on the other side of the camera, directing short films. She's also an amazing environmental activist and author of Go Gently, actionable steps to nurture you and the planet. Like me, Bonnie adores the coast. There's something so special about being by the sea. For me, it's just a full-bodied experience, like the sound of the waves, the smell of sea, but also the chips cooking nearby, the sound of seagulls, the feeling of the cold water. I just love all of it. So, so many of us are experiencing that awful climate anxiety and can feel paralysed by all the things we're not doing, which is why I love Bonnie's book, because it guides you through these really lovely, small, manageable changes we can all make in our everyday lives. I really hope you'll learn some new stuff from this chat. I certainly did. Just by stepping back and really thinking about terms we maybe assume we understand, like green, eco and sustainable. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. All right, this is the show. Hello, Bonnie. Hello. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. How long have you been in the UK for now? Um, I think about five days. Oh, so only a very short (laughs) period. Still jet lagged? Uh, Kind of. I'm usually a real morning person, so I struggle when I'm not awake first thing. And this morning I was very slow. Yeah, it's brutal coming back to the UK from the States. Yeah. Whereas when I go back, I get to thrive in my morning you know, yes. life. <laughs> You're up at like three in the morning yeah. having brekkie. Wonderful. Yeah. So how long have you lived in the States for now? Uh, seven years. Wow. Yeah. Um, so why did you go out there initially? Um, who knows? It's a good question. I guess, uh, I, I guess I wanted another adventure of a new city just because I was so ingrained in my life and everything being quite similar. Uh, so I went to New York. I had a few friends who had like lived there and different things. And so I moved there. Um, and then I lived there for nearly two years. And then I moved to the West Coast. And, Gorgeous. Yeah. And do you feel at home there? 
Yeah, I do. I feel like I've got very used to the lifestyle, I guess. I mean, I mainly moved to LA. I mean, people would assume I moved for like the entertainment industry, but I think I mainly moved because I love to surf and I love being by the water. And I thought an amazing opportunity that you can be in a city where lots happens and also be by the water at the same time. Oh, and it's those beaches so, yeah. are great. Yeah. So oh. lots of surfing and camping and being outdoors and having, I guess, way more days of a year you can do that. Yeah. So we definitely got very used Which to we that. do not have. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Although you have brought the sunshine. It's it so nice very to good day. And we've had this horrible, I don't know, I was going to say two weeks. It's probably been months of just grey. It's mm-hmm. been really bleak here. So thank you for bringing the sunshine today. I'm yeah, very, very pleased. I'm always very interested talking to people that have had great change in life, sort of a a pivot moment, especially career-wise. And obviously you spent a large portion of your childhood acting and then ended up sort of being drawn more to directing initially and obviously then the activism work that we're going to talk about today. What, What was the sort of draw to directing, first of all? What pushed you in that direction? Yeah, I mean, I guess through, you know, the experience of 10 years in Harry Potter, I got so exposed to the whole kind of craft of filmmaking. And I was always very, very interested and curious as to sort of how all the small parts make a whole of a film. I think I've always been someone who likes to understand, like, big picture and, and systems and how they kind of work. Uh, and what I found sometimes frustrating, even when I was younger about acting, it's just that small part that you come in and sort of, like, leave. And I always wanted to know where that footage went, how it was edited, like, how they put sound to that so that curiosity I guess began when I was on the film set and I would try as much as I could when I wasn't catching up with schoolwork or on set to try and get like experience behind the scenes so I worked in different departments like when I was uh, like just doing I guess interning type like things work experience and then I I guess I never thought I would go to drama school it wasn't really something that interested me and I always wanted to go to art school I guess I think all my family have so I kind of like led in that way and and the film course that I did was part of London College of Communication here in London so it's kind of an art kind of environment um so yeah I wanted to go because I wanted to be as I say I was just more curious to all the like how a story comes to be and how it's kind of yeah made but I think they inform each other. You know, I think I wouldn't probably direct or have the way I like to direct if I hadn't have been directed as an actor. And I think that language that you create is like it was, you know, very vital, amazing information to have when I started directing. But yeah, I don't know if it's because I'm like a control freak and I want to be part of everything <laughs> um, or if it's a creative, you know, broader picture. But Who cares? It works, it works for you. It's working. Is there more, is there a level of comfort in directing that you didn't perhaps have when you were acting? Yeah, I think I think there's a level of comfort, but I, I wonder sometimes whether that's, you know, through perfecting your craft and studying and learning, or it's also to do with just like a coming of age and growing yeah. up where you kind of, I think there's both parts of it really. I think I enjoyed going, you know, I could have, I guess, not gone to university and just started making films, but I really liked the formally having that education and being around my contemporaries suddenly whereas obviously while I was obviously around my contemporaries of fellow cast members I wasn't in terms of the the people behind the camera they were like much further on in their career so I think I liked sort of like it felt to me as though I was like starting again a little bit by kind of studying and you know still now only making very small scale projects uh, so it feels like I can have a bit more ownership over that career or growth of that. But really like diverse projects you're working on as well, you know, you sort of film, but also music videos and moving into that world. Mm-hmm. Is this something that, you know, do you have big plans with it or, or is it just sort of the creative endeavour and, and being in the flow that interests you at the moment? Yeah, I think there's, 
I mean, I mean, I guess there's always a direction that is led by like what interests me. Um, but there's never been some like ultimate goal. I guess. I mean, obviously, there's always that desire to to work your way up to a feature length film, directing a feature length film, and you know, it's it's I guess a more obvious and only way to do that is by going through short films, music videos, commercials, like working and collaborating with people. And I am working on like a larger piece that'll hopefully be my first feature length film, uh, which is exciting. I guess there's a, like you say, it's just a creative flow. One thing leads me to another. Like, I mean, I would never have thought if someone told me three, four years ago, I would have written a book. So it's nice. I feel like I'm surprised by where I'm led to. It's all just storytelling. You know, no yeah. matter what medium, like it, it kind of manifests in. It's all the same thing to me. So let's talk about this brilliant book, Go Gently, that I've got here, yes. which is gorgeous, and um, there's lots of lovely interviews in there, and practical tips, and recipes, and beautiful photography. All obviously based around your environmental activism. Mm-hmm. What pulled you to that route as well? I guess without knowing it, my personality, even from like being a kid at school, I was always the kid who loved to take part in the bake sales and the showing up, the kind of dressing, putting your pajamas on for comic relief, or you know, all those extra things I love to do. I think I love to like physically show up rather than just kind of think or talk about it. Like I quite liked that, um, and I feel like acting is a bit like that. You have to kind of step up to it or not. So so I had that nature in me to like physically show up and which I guess has, I guess, layers of, again, storytelling through kind of compassion of hearing other people's story and amplifying that message. But in terms of environmental advocacy work, you know, like I mentioned, I've always loved the seaside and like coastal environments. And I already was beginning to see in my teenage years how much more plastic pollution was ending up on our coastlines. And I was just confused why this was there. Was it people literally dropping it on the beach? Was it coming in through the the kind of tide? And I just was curious as to understand like more about essentially where our rubbish goes and what can we do to like to change our habits or also what could we do on like a larger scale of like challenge brands or supermarkets or government. So that led me to then start working with Greenpeace. And I went on a ship with them only for a couple of days. They were doing like a two month trip down the Atlantic coast of America. And I just went on a couple of days. But on that trip, trawled for microplastics. So it's literally like, you know, putting a fishing net down and seeing what plastics you come up with. And, you know, not one day out of their two month trip, did they not bring up a type of plastic. And they were just, you know, measuring one small, tiny part of a huge ocean. So that really brought the kind of often far away statistics to like I was seeing that in front yeah. of my eyes. And all the campaigners on that ship were just so passionate and they just were so hopeful and they had such amazing ideas around the solutions that existed. So it was that trip that really turned it from something I was concerned about to something I was actually actively trying to do something about in my daily kind of life. Yeah, I mean, the plastic crisis, I think, fills most of us with utter angst and sort of despair at times. I mean, hope we're going to get onto and it's highly important that we have hope. But let's talk about the problem first. You know, it is something that I think we all try and push to the back of our minds and not think about too much because it is huge. And, you know, like you've said, you show up, you like to do things. And it's not only working with other charities, you set up your own initiative, Waste Watch. So, mm-hmm. so tell me about this and, and, and what Waste Watch does. Yeah, Waste Watch was born out of, it was my friend and I who started it. And essentially these feelings, you're like, ah, I'm so overwhelmed, yeah. I can't do anything about it. And, you know, you don't want your entire like 
kind of consumption of information and the way you react to just exist on social media, kind of in that echo chamber of something and you want to actually meet up with people. So we started a local kind of meetup group that was like a physical group that started like on my living room floor and then developed kind of to become bigger. But essentially we curated panels on different subjects. So it could be something like what ends up in our waterways through, you know, what we flush down the toilet to our laundry machines, to our kitchen sinks and like the micro kind of toxins that can end up in that water. So that was like a whole panel just on that or a whole panel on, you know, food waste and composting or different things like that, basically, that we brought in specialists had a dialogue and then maybe just left it open to the audience and our group. And then our idea at the end of each meeting, we'd kind of like all would co- like commit to, you know, one or two actions that we were going to try and do in our lives based on what we had learnt at that event. That's incredible. Yeah. That's such a brilliant way of doing it because, again, like your storytelling is threaded throughout that, that you're sat sort of communicating with other people that have share an interest with you. But it doesn't stop there. There's the practical bit afterwards. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what I'm really interested in is, you know, through that process of you all discussing these subjects and learning from each other or statistics, wherever you've got your information from, you then go off and try. And I think there's this expectation we have of ourselves that it then has to be perfect that we have to be nailing it and we are as environmentally friendly as possible which sort of dead ends the process instantly we feel sort of overwhelmed like I can't I can't make all those changes and we talked to the the guys from Earthrise about this a similar subject of giving it a try making small incremental changes rather than you need to just change your whole life overnight and become this perfect green human which Mm -hmm. is a big ask for anyone yeah I mean I really you know say that in the introduction of my book that it's kind of a celebration of imperfect and in-process action and I think we have been so I mean I think we've there's many things there's like what we've seen as stereotypical maybe sort of ideas of people and we have to like if we're not that perfect activism or the person who is with the microphone at the front of stage there's so many other roles that you don't maybe need to use your voice loudly but you could be using a skill or something there's so many different ways to become part of the movement that fits people's identities personalities what they have access to you know everything so and I think if we do get too caught up on doing everything perfectly and you know if we start something now we can never go back on that you know it it essentially brings in ego to the the dialogue which is just not needed and it's distracting and it can cause people to feel also quite um scared about giving it a go because their fear is that you know they're not going to be worth it or they're not enough in that space and I think that's like the most damaging thing that you can present in a movement because you need everyone to show up. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you brought ego into the picture because it seems, you know, the human ego <laughs> results in all of our problems, like yeah. all global problems start at the place of ego. Yeah. And in the opening paragraph to the book, Go Gently, you write, um, humans disproportionately affect all other species. And although that's, you know, an obvious statement we all understand we don't ever think about that we don't go oh my god we are so arrogant in our position that we believe we hold in this universe that we're walking around able to do whatever we want take whatever we want animals don't have that power or right plants and trees are even further down on the in the hierarchy and and it's again terrifying when you think of it like that that we're just all walking around thinking that we're so superior and that thriving nature and the sort of miracle of that and how the ecosystems within each species of animal work and cooperate that we're just we just don't care 
No, yeah, we don't. And I think, I mean, I think that is changing as we begin to break down this thought that has been so kind of led in, I guess, society, culture, literature, this idea that we are separate from nature and must journey to it rather than being like, we've romanticized it slightly rather than be like, we are literally we are nature. Our skin is it. So I think that's also, you know, a massive shift I think that humanity is going through that like seeing it as you know it's brother sister neighbor whatever that may be and while there's always going to be hierarchy in a like a food chain you know it doesn't have to be in the way that we like respect things and and also realizing we're we're taking and they're giving us so much whether that's you know animals in the ocean creating an amazing marine thriving life that's sequestering carbon from our atmosphere so we can breathe like all these things you know are giving us so much and we're all going to be very shocked and terrified when they suddenly can't give those things anymore yeah because we're we're taking more than we need. That that mm-hmm. seems to be the problem. If we were all consuming on a level that was necessary, because like you say, there's always going to be a sort of food chain, even within the animal kingdom mm-hmm. itself, respectively. But we're taking more than we need in every area of life. And this is the bit that frustrates me, and I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it. I, I constantly end up feeling quite frustrated, like I think most people do, when we know that there are... A handful, I think it is quite literally a handful of these huge conglomerates, these companies that own lots of other little, well, they're not little, lots of other big companies. Mm -hmm. And they're not making the change because at the end of the day, they just want to be able to pay their shareholders and keep the profit and keep making more and more money year on year. So they're perpetuating so much of this, whether it is overfishing the seas, using plastic bottles rather than aluminium cans, which seems to be like the easiest swap that they're not doing, whatever it might be. Yet the responsibility seems to always lie on the individual. And I know that we do have a responsibility Mm -hmm. and we have to respect our own little worlds and do what we can. But it feels like they have zero responsibility and seemingly aren't taking much action. And we're left with the sort of the icky guilt and the shame of the things that we know we're doing wrong Mm. and the desire to be better but not quite knowing how to action it. That to me just seems so jarring and like that the change has to come from them too, probably more so than us as individuals. But I might be wrong. I mean, yeah, it's both, right? It's it's both things. And also believing and reminding ourselves that the people who sit in cabinets of government or around a board table are also individuals. So it's like, how do you also play and humanize those types of things when they do as much as they can to make them these like indestructible entities, you know, that, that will not, you know, pay the taxes they should, they will not put the planet before profit, all those kind of things. I mean, and it's not just that individuals are then ridden with guilt. They're literally ridden with bills they can't pay for I mean here in Britain just this idea in the you know this month and the last couple of months like energy prices yeah. have skyrocketed so it's not just about how our conscience is it's literally how our like survival is so I think what I've loved about and what I've learned from working with Greenpeace is this always this kind of dual approach obviously of the kind of individual action so that you can feel some sense of empowerment and this is what my book is really about for me in these moments where I got just absolutely you know angry and upset from the really slow process that's not happening that it needs to be happening in corporations and government I was like I need to cultivate something to make me feel okay from day to day and keep going and and feel 
to also make it, you need to be sustained and you need to feel like having enough energy, I guess, yeah. to keep going. And I think when it comes to, yeah, obviously companies, they have the money and the access and the resources to develop ways out of these problems. Like you say, whether that's using different materials to package goods in, refillable systems, renewable energy. And I think, unfortunately, there's lots of things that those kind of companies have actually paid a lot of money to exist. So it's pushed on us. For instance, like recycling was literally something created by the plastics industry to make us think oh it's fine you can use plastic because you can recycle it yeah. which they literally lobbied to make exist or things like calculate your carbon footprint and feel terrible about it yes. you know it's like well carbon footprint is in a way like a horrible negative way to make us be forced to think we should reduce ourself because it's and I think as well and what I sort of explained a bit about in the book is we can often think the way we should do things or how we should help is by being smaller, using less, doing without, reducing, which is not language that's fun to hear or do. And I think it's more interesting to look at language that's about, you know, regeneration, like how could you support food systems that actually regenerate our soil and actually help the local economy of farmers? Or how can you do things that are actually about getting the most out of your food? And I, oh no, you shouldn't have that, you know, type of thing. So I think we can also shift slightly the language around it so that there's some joy in it and I think also you feel a bit more connected to other people and I think you know and sort of how and why Waste Watch was also something I created was because I just needed to be in community rather than just sat at home thinking like the weight of the world was like on my shoulders. Yeah, which I think most people sort of wake up with even if it's on a very Mm -hmm. subconscious level like I sometimes wake up with a and it's only been recently because we know that obviously the world's been in a state of flux in all manner of ways and still is. But, you know, the sort of environmental one, you just feel a bit sort of dreadful about it all the time. And mm-hmm. that's why I love that your book's very practical as well, because we do need to, where we can, make our own individual changes. And like you say, it hasn't got to be all sort of using the language that makes us feel like, oh, it's so boring. I can't do anything mm-hmm. fun anymore that I want to do. It's, a, it's about looking for these new options because... The systems that we work in, which, you know, are run by governments, but also hugely run by these massive companies, they've made it so easy for us to be as, I don't want to use the word lazy, but as sort of complacent Mm -hmm. as possible. And like most people at the moment are time poor, they're struggling, they've got shit going on. They don't even have the brain space to go, oh, yeah, I can think about this and actually do something about it. But these changes don't have to be these huge overhauls. They are you know tiny and and learning about new stuff like you might have a refill center in your town you're not aware of or you might learn something from your book about upcycling that you've Mm -hmm. never you know thought about before what's been your I guess you know your most fun or your favorite swap or or new learning that you've implemented into your life yeah I think as well it's always good to like and what I sort of love to try and kind of present is that like things that I may love maybe someone else is like oh that sounds you know terrible <laughs> and boring and I so I try and look at this idea of how can you find somewhere that you yeah. already enjoy something in your life you already enjoy doing and maybe start there because then you're more likely to commit to it so yeah. could be cooking you could love beauty you could love gardening technology like find something within that 
otherwise, you know, it's just not a fun habit to implement. So, you know, for me, I have always loved cooking in the kitchen. It's so kind of practical and hands-on and I just sort of drift away doing it. So I first looked at single-use plastics in just cooking and how I was buying food. And then that led into like food waste and how I could compost the kind of like organic natural stuff and not send it to landfill and instead, you know, compost that. First, I wasn't doing that at home. I was just taking it to like a local community garden. And then I slowly kind of gained the confidence try start having my own home composting system and that could be also your local council maybe pick it up so yeah they were my kind of interests and then like more recently I've tried to get better at like mending things and sewing and and doing things like that so it's always ebbs and flows of of interest and I think it's always important to say people often think like what's the one thing I can do what's the five things I can do and I unfortunately I don't think it's that simple I think it's so much more nuanced there's so much more gray area to it and I think what's the best thing we can do is ask more questions and look behind the choices maybe consumer choices we have to make so we know a bit more about where that came from you know or whose livelihoods were affected by making that or what is the afterlife of this product if I buy it or do I already have something at home I could use already and don't need to buy a new one or buy it secondhand just so we can make more intentional choices and I think it all literally stems from just a slowing down I think we're all everything has built in this convenience this model of convenience like oh quickly just like buy click collect yeah it's all very fast and like you say I totally get that it's not top priority there's a many other things that people have to worry about in their day and so I think it is about just taking a couple of things and knowing one week you could be great at it and then the next week it's okay if you don't do those things and if we bully ourselves to be able to feel bad about it it's kind of counterproductive yeah it's a very very sensible way of looking at it because I think most people do feel burdened and then go oh I'll worry about that another year but Mm -hmm. actually going finding your thing that you're really passionate about like I love cleaning I am a Virgo I like things to be a certain way I can't start working till I've made the kitchen counter really clean and crumb free from all the kids breakfast and whatnot and I found two really good companies um one is called Neat with a full stop at the end and one's called Spruce I think it is and they're both just refill cleaning products they will mm-hmm. send you like one bottle for life one of them's aluminium one of them is plastic but you're gonna have it forever and you just buy one of them is like a sachet and one of them is a small glass bottle of, of liquid. Mm-hmm. It works out cheaper. They last way longer. They smell amazing. And it's like, oh, I've I've made a change there. And it wasn't this awful, drastic mm-hmm. having to like have chickens in my garden and my own vegetables growing sort <laughs> yeah. of thing. Like I'll get there. But this felt like a really good step. And I think it's so important to, to look at that, that passion. And, th- and there's a term, I've had to write it down because I can't remember the name of it, that you write about in the book. A Japanese term, ikigai. Oh, yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Ooh. Um, A Japanese term, which is sort of looking at your set of values and when you wake up in the morning, what that meaning and that reason is. How has that helped you commit to, to making changes in this way of life, sort of thinking in that way? Yeah, I think I kind of use it for all other parts of my life too. I think like you're saying, you sometimes you can wake up with that feeling that you're stuck on like a you know, particular, or something you go to bed thinking about at night, like, oh, if only I could shift that, or I really worry about, you know, our waterways, or I really worry about our trees, or whatever that could be. Like, just be, just, I guess, be aware of, like, what thing you get kind of stuck or drawn to. And then it's really about, obviously, intersecting those things, kind of similar to how I was saying, like, somewhere you actually, to find that purpose, like, looking at 
I guess, where you find joy, what you have to offer, like your skill sets um, or just your personalities. Like knowing that you like cleaning is like helpful because then you're like, OK, I'm going to start there because it's actually something I know I'm good at and I like to do. Um, and I'm really good at it, by the way. Yes. Like I'm super good at cleaning. <laughs> I wish I had that skill. But, you know, we can we each have our own. Um, so, yeah, essentially looking at these kind of things to find that sweet spot of purpose is essentially what that, you know, the reason you get up in the morning type idea. It's literally the kind of thing I feel like you sometimes think when you're at a crossroad in your career or a relationship or work, you think about those kind of pros and cons or do I really like this? Am I the right person for this job? Or or like what is my purpose in my job? You know, I think it's similar, I think, to that kind of those crossroads you get when you need connection and in the book there's like an illustration essentially that finds that kind of and asks you a couple of questions and it definitely helped me through the book when some things are a bit difficult to explain the illustrations were were a nice way to communicate it so yeah I think it's essentially yeah what you're good at what the world needs essentially and and where you find joy and finding that kind of central kind of sweet spot of purpose planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, let's talk about hope then, because, you know, we do need to get on to hope as well. And I will name drop because I love name dropping this one. But when we had Dr. Jane Goodall on, which was an amazing opportunity, the whole thing was about hope. That's Mm -hmm. all she wanted to talk about. You know, it was a really interesting chat to hear her sort of take on everything. And hope is... You know, probably the most important thing. Otherwise, we won't even bother. We won't do the action bit. And most of the experts that you speak to in the book, one that I noted down, Leah Thomas, talks specifically about hope and a lot of that living within the younger generations, people that are already having super diverse and interesting conversations about religion, race, sexuality, gender and the environment in ways that perhaps other generations en masse mm-hmm. haven't. So we need to also look to young people and go, right, what what's the conversation here? What's going on? What are they doing? And and take advice in that way as well. Yeah, and like you say, it's it's young people. And then as you had that conversation with Dr. Jane Goodall, it's intergenerational, yeah. right? It's looking to her wisdom Absolutely. as well. And I think that's what's so, that intersectionality of this issue, which is what, you know, Leah Thomas, who you mentioned, has written a whole book on. When so many of these issues interrelate uh, and the kind of social justice element, all these issues, you realise that you can't kind of liberate one thing without liberating the next or when we look at the climate crisis why we can't just only stick to our individual actions at home is because we forget the people who could be out there you know next to a mine or a facility that could be exposed to chemical you know things that are going on just because they're maybe lower income community living next to I don't know an incinerator of plastic or whatever that could be so it's looking at the intersection of all the issues and I guess sharing those resources because everyone's goal is ultimately the same and how we can share the knowledge between people's identities and perspectives, you know, religion, race, age, and like see where you can kind of pull on everyone's information together. And I think 
a strong, you know, citizens as a community together can be very threatening to the big, large corporations mm. because, like, we are the power. Like, they are essentially doing it for us, even though often we feel like we're not being heard. And I think so much of society, sadly, has been broken down about, you know, individual gain. You know, you get successful at work, like every person for themselves. But I do personally feel in the relationships I have which a lot of these people obviously have interviewed in the book, is beginning to, like, that tide feels, hopefully, that it's shifting, that it isn't about individual gain and you're not going to get anywhere unless you're helping those around you as well. And that gives me hope, just how much how much compassion there is in this and how willing people are to, like, listen to other people and how that old model even of, like, charities and aid, like, doesn't work because you can't just guess what a community needs and drop it off on their doorstep you actually have to sit down and talk to people to understand their life and be like what would be helpful for you and then try and give that so I think that is kind of what that intersectional approach is about not kind of assuming that everyone needs the same thing can do the same thing and we each have very unique kind of lives I guess and to to kind of answer to and we need to really take heed of indigenous peoples which you know obviously there's been thousands of years of suppression mm-hmm. sadly in that area in every way which is one of the most disastrous things and I don't think any of us look at that enough that they know how to look after the land it is ingrained in their culture and in their ancestry and it is the most important thing to them that the land is worshipped and Mm -hmm. looked after and the wisdom the storytelling has been suppressed for years and years but you know these are the communities we need to be listening to Mm -hmm. these are the people that understand what's going on and how the biodiversity works in areas more than anyone and it feels like there's been a slight shift in that way, but still not enough. Yeah, I mean, I think people even having that dialogue. I mean, you know, for us growing up at school, you know, the reality of our colonial British nature, we were not taught that we nope. kind of went and pillaged and took all the resources and claimed it as our, you know, country, commonwealth, whatever that may be. So there's a massive unlearning that is happening, which is great. And then it's like, okay, how do you relearn newer ways to be that include indigenous knowledge and um, relationship that they have to the land, which is because you know, that was always there. Obviously, it's been suppressed. And how do you bring that back into the dialogue and still not continue to repeat kind of colonial ways? Like, say you decide that you're going to, you know, implement renewable energy or, you know, electric cars. Like, okay, well, the mining of those materials or the implementation of those, how do you implement those and not continue to be colonial in how you mine and disrespect that community or how you set up kind of different uh, energy resources and not make it accessible for people. So I think it's it's a massive awakening, even in my own education, like a massive breaking down of realising the kind of lies, essentially, that you're told to think it's all OK and to continue going And I've just had amazing privilege of having conversations with people who kind of sit in that knowledge. And I think it's just, it's so kind of like calming and and simple and true, their their relationship to it, kind of as I was saying, that idea, that romanticism maybe we've been given, that we have to journey to nature into a forest and not realise we're part of it. And that interconnectivity they have is so just part of their 
you know, relationship to each other. And it's so incredible and inspiring to be around and to realize we can easily get back there. You know, it is like that, the, the hope in that that I have found in those dialogues is really interesting. And, you know, for me now residing in what is now settler United States, knowing whose land I'm on, knowing the nations of, you know, where I live, whether that was like the Tongva native first peoples of LA, or now I live down in Kumeyaay lands of native people, they're the first nations of that area. So just like those, even just awareness is like a first amazing kind of step. And how much more raw it feels living there when that is still a reality. Whereas obviously here we kind of left and went to land it's not maybe as much of a living experience that you have here so it has been very interesting like being much more exposed to that um in everyday life yeah it still seems that so many indigenous communities are having to fight for you know the land and the rights they've had for thousands of years in in their ancestry there's this documentary i watched i wish i could remember the name of it and it was all based around the Grand Canyon mm-hmm. and the indigenous peoples of certain areas along the Grand Canyon and this development company that were trying to come in to build this sort of like weird tourist like ledge with restaurants and shopping areas and obviously like even the, the sort of local people who are living alongside the indigenous peoples are like you obviously can't do this yeah but they w- were so you know like distraught highly highly stressed having to fight for it and it's like this is so messed up. Like that's mm-hmm. just again the the easy route of money overpowering wisdom and like what's real and what's meant to be there. And that still feels like a bit of a way off, I guess. That we really, you know, I'm talking individually, but more so with these big companies. There, there's respect there. Yeah, I mean, I think also it's just like you know you've. When, when, like, when you think just about your own way to respect and listen to people, as you would to anyone having a conversation and sharing their thoughts, and you just think, how are these people so unhuman that yes. have zero compassion to literally listen to someone who, you know, that have their generations have lived there for thousands of years, or anywhere, you know, even you know things that can happen here and be develop through farming communities of generations and generations and that they know will destroy the water that they take from to feed their kind of crops or whatever that may be like the absolute belief that they don't think there's any cause and effect essentially which is like the most simple basic thing you're taught as a child that your actions have a cause and effect and you know sometimes you need to learn from those or it, it just blows my mind how unhuman it is basically Mm. and it feels like the higher empowered people are the more they're like that Mm -hmm. because they can just dehumanize huge groups of people quite easily because they're getting a job done yeah and i do think you know obviously when we look at government we look at you know the ceos the whoever that that gatekeeperness of it all in the idea that they are this kind of very antiquated sort of systems and and i and you know ideas that they work to and you just hope like do we just have to sort of like wait till the people who actually have some compassion and humanism are going to get into those positions of power like how do we merge what it feels like people feel and those positions and i think sometimes when they're threatened like their profit is threatened or their governance is threatened they obviously can swing the other way and go you know even worse so it's like whether or not 
we go through these kind of cycles anyway when you look to history, but it is, yeah. yeah. I mean, Russell Brand is an expert in that one in terms of the guests he gets on his podcast. I'm always fascinated. It's always nice to give another podcast a shout out, but under the skin, I just think they're so good at unpicking all of those infrastructures and looking at the breakdown of that hopefully and 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 what the newness might be and um and again like looking to hope as well which is so important so let's talk about greenwashing because that again you cover really brilliantly in the book and it's a really important thing for us to have an understanding of because again it's all made very easy for us we can buy a product and go oh it says it's green on it brilliant i'm being a good citizen or it might say eco but these words don't hold that much truth it seems from reading your book so how do we whittle down who's doing good work in these areas and who's just using the labeling and using the vernacular to kind of sell stuff yeah I think greenwashing is hard at first it's the most important thing is to think like your definition of something is not necessarily someone else's definition of something I mean even the word sustainable you know I try really not to use as much as possible because to actually genuinely call something sustainable is like a very big statement to make. Yeah. You know, to actually make no impact or keep something sustained is pretty impossible. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I prefer to use terms of like a lower impact or lower waste or because things can't really be totally, you know, waste or energy zero kind of thing. So I think with greenwashing, what's scary about it, obviously brands use it in... Even their packaging design, you know, just by colouring things a certain colour, like a bottle of yeah, green. Yeah. You oh, know, it's green! I'm good. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> or, yeah, language that's used. And I think it's a sad thing that's happening with language, you know, throughout, that things are just being used in, in the wrong kind of way that it strips them of their, like, power when they are genuinely good. And I feel sorry as well for people who are genuinely working to do great things that then get lost amongst the bigger brands that have more money to advertise. So I think, yeah, there's obviously different keywords that I sort of look at in the book, but I think the best thing is to really ask questions of a brand. You know, if they're saying, you know, sustainable T-shirt, sustainable, like, uh, what's sustainable about it? Is it the way you, that cotton was grown, how it was harvested, what are you doing about the soil, like how much water do you use to make that t-shirt, like what am I going to do with the t-shirt afterwards, what was the living wage that you gave to the people working for this t-shirt, I think it's just all about seeking more transparency I think behind the statements Uh, and I think if people don't and companies don't openly provide good information on their website or social media, you know, it's going to be like what are you kind of hiding? To me, that's how I sort of see it. If they haven't got some really good statements and actual assessments they can show you. And I think the best way to start is we all probably have a couple of brands we like buying from. Just start there. Start with like two brands that you know, whether that's a supermarket or clothing or your face wash, whatever that could be, like start with just a couple of important things that you use a lot it seems like with shopping and the culture of shopping has changed so drastically like even in the last 20 years because I remember I mean when I was growing up I didn't have money to go into like any sort of fancy shop so I got all of my clothes from Wembley Market I mean god knows where they came from but it was like that was how we shopped and it wasn't very often it was like a real treat we'd go to Wembley Market with 10 pounds and we'd hunt for like proper bargains and come back with a bag of utter crap that was you know I now look back and absolutely cringe on but 
But now it's like shopping is just a daily endeavour if you want it to be. It's mm-hmm. like you see something on Instagram, you click on it, you buy it. The next thing, it's there probably the same day. Mm-hmm. Our whole, and, you know, it's not even, you know, back in the day with more high-end fashion, it was all based on seasons and it was always a little bit ahead of what would happen. Now it's like you're just buying what you're seeing other people wearing online the whole time. And even with supermarkets, because if we go back even further to look at how people would buy food, usually very locally, you know, if we're sort of talking about the turn of the set, well, not the century, the one before, but, but around, you know, I guess sort of the, the 40s, the 50s, my grandparents would still go and you would buy your meat from a butcher, your fish from a fishmonger. Then you would go to a grocery store to buy your vegetables and your fruit and then the baker for the bread. And it was this sort of high street experience where you went to all of your local shops and you supported them. And you then did have a better understanding of where they were getting their produce from and how they were doing it. And you could have an actual conversation with that person. But I don't know anyone that shops like that anymore who's going (laughs) to a butcher or a fishmonger or even to a baker to get their bread. It's like... You go online, you order it online or you go to your local big supermarket and everything you could possibly imagine is in one place. So, again, it feels like we have to go a bit against the grain to get back to a place of doing it like our you know, ancestors, our grandparents mm-hmm. did. And I think, too, it's also, you know, I could only, yeah, think to my grandparents who would have done that. So it's not that far. While things have moved fast. It's not that far away. And I think a lot of the things, while we also think everything's about new ideas, new systems, a lot of the things that we could be doing to be helping ourselves and the planet is actually looking to our past, to ideas of skills we've lost. And like you say, having those relationships with the people, with the farmer, with whoever that could be, is so sad to think that we've lost those things. And convenience has created these megastores where you get everything that have absolutely no personality to. And the only thing they rely on is advertising and unfortunately sometimes greenwashing. You don't rely on Mary at the grocery store no. who's chatting to you about, oh, the asparagus just came through. It's really nice. Like, you should have it. You know, And that is way more a lovely way to be inspired as to what to cook. And I do think how we've become so uninspired maybe to think, you know, I'm just, end of the day's work, I'm totally uninspired of what to cook. I'll just, you know click and order this food or buy the pre-made thing because who's inspiring us about the vegetables growing or the meat they have and the fish whereas if maybe we had those relationships it would feel more like part of everyday life to care for ourselves because cooking a nice meal for yourself is an act of you know care and I think it's sad because it's also not investing in our local economy when you're thinking about you know economic hardships and crashes like we could literally just reinvest by creating more local food systems and also just think you could go to a vegetable section of a supermarket now and buy I don't know some green bean from Peru yes like that has come on a plane all the way here but we aren't even taught to think to look where's its origin yeah I know whereas like getting excited that strawberries are in from Britain right now like that's the beginning of summer like and how that creates this like beautiful way that every day doesn't feel the same which I can kind of feel like to me half the time in the way we're living and it creates this excitement you know and then at the end of the season like oh I'm not gonna have tomatoes till next summer or all those things that seem like a luxury now because they are in a way you know a luxury like you say not many people have the time to go to four different shops on the high street to get their food so it's like how do we create care which 
doesn't need to be only led by ourselves, which I think is up to governments, really. How do you create more community care so people have time to do those things? Because it shouldn't be up to us to like, okay, I'm going to carve out uh, you know, an hour I don't have yeah. in the morning to write a shopping list or whatever. It that feels like it's all down to us so so often. But I know, you know this is why I love the work that Holly Tucker does in this country with supporting small local businesses because it is so important. That's her absolute passion. That's all she does. I live on the outskirts of a town, so we've got like a tiny street just when you walk out my house to the left which isn't classed as sort of part of the town. It's its own little, almost little village. And we have luckily got a handful of independent shops that everybody in the area would rather get their bread from our bakery there, thank God, which is amazing bread. And we've got a really lovely Sardinian shop, which is just along from there where... Well, we know the owner really well, Martina. She's absolutely amazing and she has loads of beautiful coffee and and things that she, again, is knowledgeable about and knows where they've come from and and how they've got there. But it's quite rare to find areas like that Mm -hmm. and to then, like you say, have the time and the option to go and support them. But I think if we know that it's important to and we... And we see jolly faces in shops who, you know, that is their life's work, their passion, creating that bakery, that Sardinian place, whatever it might be. I think just starting there is good. Like, that is important rather than it is quicker and easier for me to just do that. But it's going to really help them out as well if I if I do, you know, it's part of your community. It's part of the place you live. It's the people that you see every day. I think, again, we don't focus on that enough, I guess. And I think often, obviously, things is things that are on the fringes of stuff that can be, you know, whether that's when you're looking at sustainability, people think like, oh, all these things, they, they, I need to get all these new things to be sustainable. And we don't need to get all these new things or branch out and get shop in maybe more expensive shops because we could actually make those better things maybe less expensive if they were more accessible and yeah. popular. Like. If that is in less demand, the overhead of those businesses to exist are high, so their prices have to be high. But if we created more opportunity for those people to succeed, like they would be more popular and therefore hopefully they can like bring down that cost value. Or as bigger brands come around, like the two cleaning products you buy and you know that they're as cost efficient and they still do the job well, like we can actually kind of make people realise that it isn't because they're less accessible or more expensive. Like, if we can make it genuinely as accessible and at the same price point, then why would people not yeah. go to do those I think, I think we've things. sort of seen it in the food industry to a, a level where, because there's been such an influx of people talking about plant-based eating, veganism, whatever the hell you want to call it, you know, I've been vegan for about three years now, but I've been vegetarian practically my whole life since I was a tiny kid. But it was expensive to be a vegetarian back in the day. Mm-hmm. Like in the 80s and 90s, mum was like, oh, my God. And mum turned vegetarian the same time as me. I was about 10. And it was like, oh, my God, we've got to buy all these different things. And the stuff that's already pre-made is really expensive. And, and now we're seeing like oat milk. You know, it's not disproportionately expensive mm-hmm. in comparison to regular milk. Rice milk, whatever milk you fancy. It's it's ubiquitous. Everybody's buying it now. So like you say, the prices come down. And I think... That's really interesting because then we start to really realise we can vote with our money and we can, we do have some sway here. We've got like a big sway if mm-hmm. we're all making good decisions together. And also it can't, as you said, like you can just go to your average supermarket now and see those other alternatives and options 
and they are there. It's not like before where you have to go seek them out or like you say, buy pre-made vegetarian burgers. Like you can literally, and also breaking down this idea, you know, for me, I would always like, buy those things and then I was like actually I can just make them they just have a couple of ingredients in that's like pretty simple to make myself so I think also breaking that idea that it is outside of ourselves what we need to like fix or buying them you know new sustainable thing and I try and say in the book like the worst thing to do would be to overhaul your life and throw everything you have out you know it's working with what you already have or what's already out there and it comes down to our imagination I think just applying it to the situation and making it work for us whether it's doesn't need to be a strict massive change it could be like okay I'm going to start with one day a week I'm going to do this or however you like to manage I mean I always think about it as like the worst thing to do would be to set yourself 10 really difficult New Year's resolutions because by the end of January you feel terrible with any of them yeah so it's like I always see it similar to that like looking at just like okay I'm just going to use like some nice gentle things like three things and then you feel like, wow, I feel really good. I did those things. And then you feel inspired to do the next. Oh, and a really important thing that you should talk about, I forgot about this, is um, social proofing. Mm-hmm. So say you're doing stuff at home or like, you know, whatever it is, make sure you're replicating that, you know, in your local community or like the example you give in the book is you're in the supermarket, you take your own bags with you, other people see you and go, oh God, I could have so easily brought the 10 tote bags that I have. Mm-hmm you know, in my cupboard with me and use them instead of getting these plastic ones. So it's really important because we are all, you know, we we just copy everybody else a lot of the time. We're quite basic as humans and we'll see other people doing something and go, oh yeah, I'll do that then. So it's really important that we take it out of the house and sort of show people what we're doing and what is on offer and what's available and what's quite easy to change. Yeah, and how we just work. We are naturally people who are influenced by others, even more so if they're people we like and respect. You know, all those ways that we just very simply work. Or as well, you know, maybe you are someone listening and you you're have your own business and you have a company. How could you create ways to actually incentivize people to make those good things? You know, obviously, we either have those things where you're like charged for, uh, you know, to use a bag or you get, you know, five pence or 10 pence or however much off your coffee if you bring your reusable coffee. Like, we do work to those simple <laughs> Yeah, ways we like a reward chart. <laughs> so, like, why not do that, yeah. you know, if you are in the power to do that in your company or business or, or just even with your friends or kids or whatever that could be. And I think, too, you know, the worst thing anyone can do is force anyone to do things by feeling guilty about it you know shaming a friend or someone is the worst thing we could do yeah and the best way we can lead by influence is just doing it and you're not going to see the person behind you in the line at the supermarket who thinks tomorrow i'm gonna bring my bag and tomorrow they do bring their bag you don't see that happening it just is like how social proof i guess yeah it works and and people like seeing the joy that you get from something and they're like oh i want to try that that looks fun yeah yeah love I've always got my tote bags in the boot of the car. Yeah. Hate having a plastic bag. It's the pits. Um, God, well, look, thank you for writing this book. It's brilliant. I learned a ton from it. There's loads of things I want to try in it. There's loads of recipes and things that I want to give a go to. So thank you so much for writing it. And thank you for talking to me today, Bonnie. Thank you. It's been lovely. There you go. I really, I hope you loved that chat. I hope that that chat has inspired you to go out into the world and show everyone the brilliant small things you're doing to help yourself and the earth. I certainly will be doing that. Thank you so much for your time, Bonnie. I really loved having that conversation with Bonnie there. 
Bonnie's book, Go Gently, Actionable Steps to Nurture You and the Planet, is out now. And there are loads of other episodes in the Happy Place catalogue that explore how we can be kinder to the planet. I tell you what, you need to go and search the Jane Goodall one for certain. That is a beauty. Also, you could search for the Earthrise episode. And there's a lovely one about farming with Andy Cato, where, honestly, I learned so much and became obsessed by Andy's work after that. Please go and give it a listen if you have the time and inclination. Massive thanks again to Bonnie, to the producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, and to you gorgeous lot. Thank you so blimmin' much. I'll chat soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.